hello. Hey. How's it going? Good. How are you? Also good. Um, well, it's, it's Halloween today, but it's mm-hmm. going to be November when this comes out, and that's crazy to me. Very. But it's already almost 2022 when it still feels like 2020 <laughs> is a thing. Literally. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm not going to get over that. Like, I literally sometimes write the date as 2020. <laughs> me too. And then it blows my mind when I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. 21. Oh, and now it's going to be 22. And I mm-hmm. literally don't even feel like 2020 happened. So this is just yeah. blowing my mind. Um, but, you know, what never changes is um, the fact that there are serial, serial killers to talk about. So I suppose so. <laughs> it's the one constant, you know, people murdering <laughs> other people. Wow, what a great, what a great world. <laughs> I joke about this, but it's because of trauma. It's fine, though. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I've, I've got a serial killer for you today. Um, real fun, real fresh, real new and exciting. Um, but yeah, without further ado, let's get right into it. I'm Sonia. I'm Maddie. And welcome to Grim. Woo! So, um, today we're going to be talking about John Jubert. I think that's how you say his name. It's J-O-U-B-E-R-T. Like Jubert sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so John Joseph Jubert IV, uh, his parents really liked those J names. Yeah. Um, and you know, from what we know about men with J names, (laughs) (laughs) he's got three of them. Oh, Yeah triple whammy Um, oh you know um but he was an american serial killer who murdered three boys in maine and nebraska Um, in maine and nebraska yep interesting Mm -hmm. that's a that's kind of a big geographical difference it really is isn't it (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah um yeah so don't confuse him with john jubert the famous south african music composer because they are different people (laughs) yeah that would not not be good to confuse him with poor poor um music composer yeah you know you know um but yeah so uh jubert's childhood was um pretty tumultuous as is i think we talk about this a lot many serial killers have pretty terrible childhoods Mm -hmm. um both of his parents uh, divorced when he was six years old, and he went to live with his mother in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Oh, Massachusetts. Yeah, you know. But um, he was not allowed to visit his father at all, and then he started to resent his mother, who he described mm. as controlling. Um, so it just it wasn't the best situation for him, I don't think. Yeah. In 1971, his mother moved them out of their former house into this, like, run-down apartment complex. Um, so, living situation wasn't the best, and um, at this time, he was basically considered an outcast at school. Mm-hmm. And um, was quite isolated, I think, because he didn't really have that many friends. Um, um, yeah, so he decided that he was going to join the Cub Scouts to... Okay. Um, compensate for these feelings of isolation yeah and he did not doing that yeah so i mean good for him for like thinking about that i feel like that's a good way to make some friends is to join some 
some things. Yeah, <laughs> I love being in the Girl Scouts. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad that you did things in the Girl Scouts that weren't what he did because oh, no. when he joined the Cub Scouts, he really started to discover himself in that he had sadistic and homicidal fantasies. Yeah, see, I stuck to selling cookies and making friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You did Cubs or you did Girl Scouts right. He did not do Cub Scouts very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I got to this point where he was contemplating murdering strangers on the streets, oh, like tying them shit. up and gagging them. Yeah. How uh, really, old is really he? bad. I mean, he's like high school. Okay. I'm, okay. Like, not that old. No. Yeah, I, no, no. Um, and there was this later um, psychiatric report that he was described saying that he like derived pleasure from the thought of his victims oh my god like hurting them saying quote if you are going to do it like get it over with and quote, I don't like he was just very much like like sadistic yeah is is what I'm getting from this mm-hmm. um yeah so he was he stayed in this rundown apartment complex for around three years um in 1974 his mother moved the family to Portland, Maine, and he was, oh, he was 13 at this point when they moved to Maine, so when he joined Cub Scouts younger than that. <laughs> Yikes. Um, yeah, so in Maine, he stabbed a young girl with a pencil. <gasps> oh, okay. And, yep, and then said that um, he felt sexually stimulated when she cried out in pain. Mm, yeah, not good. Not good at all. Um, it was uh, 4.05 p.m. on December 12th when six-year-old Sarah Canty dropped a football outside her house um, at Oakdale and Dartmouth Streets, and she like bent over to pick it up because it's what you do when you drop things, and reported that a young man on a green 10-speed bicycle just like rode up behind her and then stabbed her in the back <gasps> with a pencil. Oh, my God. Yeah, and then he just, like, kept going. It's just on a rampage. Yeah, and according to police reports, like, Sarah ran inside her house, and she was wearing a jacket, shirt, and undershirt. And when she took those off, she had a quarter-inch puncture wound. (gasps) Oh, my God. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, The next day, he took a razor blade and, like, cut another girl as he bikes past jeez this kid is out of control yeah um not the next day sorry it was like a a couple weeks later on january 24th yeah still (laughs) um but vicky goff was walking on deering avenue at 7 15 p.m and she was like older she was like sarah was six years old she was a bit older she was heading to a creative writing class at the university of southern maine and um, said that a young man walked by her and she said hi to him. And then moments later, she felt a hand over her mouth from behind and all felt like she'd been punched in the side. Oh, God. Um, Later in the port, she said that she remembered falling down and standing up again and yelling, why'd you have to do that to this man as he ran away? And then she looked down and saw blood and realized that she had been, like, stabbed. Yikes. And um, ended up getting surgery for a punctured kidney at Maine Medical Center. Oh, my God. And then spent a week recovering in the hospital. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, 
this is really bad about two months I mean all of it's bad but this is like two months after uh the stabbing um on March 24th there was a third grade student so like a child Mm -hmm. (laughs) walking down Deering Avenue when it was reported that a young man with a 10-speed bicycle beckoned him to come closer um, and asked Michael Whitman, who was nine at the time, who he was and where he was going. Michael looked away for a moment and then was slashed in the throat with an exacto knife. Oh, my God. Is he okay? Yeah, he ran home. Okay, good. And it oh took 12 stitches to close the wound. It was two inches, <gasps> like... I'm, like, holding my neck right now. Yeah, horrifying. Oh, my God. Legitimately horrifying. Yeah. And I think there was, like, also another incident reported. I can't find that many details on it, but it mentioned that, like, he beat up and nearly strangled another boy. Like, it just looked like he, like, wanted the power of, like, bullying and then went on from that to, like, stabbing people. Yeah, very violent. Um, somehow he graduated from high school when he was in Maine in 1981 Um, and then the attack stopped just like suddenly oh in Maine like gone oh Um, did he move well yeah so he like he graduated from high school in 1981 and then went to attend Norwich University which is this like military college in Northfield Vermont Okay. Um, he went in to study engineering, but he didn't do very well at school. Like he made some friends for the first time, did a little bit of experimentation with marijuana and alcohol, but um, said he didn't like how they made him feel. Mm-hmm. And then he ended up completing ten credits before like quitting university and joining the air force. And so then, so this was he graduated in in nineteen eighty one. And then he joined the Air Force. And, um, yeah, this was in Maine. So on August 22nd, 1982, 11-year-old Richard Stetson was jogging on this trail in Portland, Maine. It was called the Black Cove Trail. I think it's, like, three and a half miles long or something. Um, And he didn't end up returning home. So his parents got really worried about him, which is a normal parental thing to happen. Mm-hmm. And they called the police. And they couldn't find anything that night. But the next day, a motorist discovered his body on the side of the I-295. Oh, no. Yeah. So what had appeared to have happened was that he was attacked and the attacker had attempted to undress him and then stabbed and strangled him. Okay. He also had bite marks all over his body. Bite marks? And, yeah. Like human? Yep. Oh. Um, and they did find a suspect for his murder who was arrested, but um, there were bite marks. So they looked at the suspect's dental records and the bite marks just didn't match. So he was released after a year and a half in custody. Wow, um, that's a long time for them not examining the evidence fully. I guess. I I don't know what happened there, but... um, Yeah. The problem with that is that they had a suspect in custody for a year and a half, 
which means that they probably weren't actively looking for other suspects during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, and then, like, the case was kind of, like, there wasn't anything they could do until any, like, other additional leads presented themselves. And that didn't happen until January of 1984, so, like, years later. Um, and by this time, by the time that they put everything together, there were two more victims who were murdered almost 1,500 miles away. Oh, no. Yeah. So, Danny Joe Ebrell was 13 years old when he disappeared while delivering newspapers on Sunday, September 18th, 1983. And this was in Bellevue, Nebraska. Um, His brother also delivered papers with him, but had not seen him in a while. And ended up remembering that like they were followed by a white man in a tan car on different days um which sketchy yeah creepy <laughs> yeah. and um so on this particular day on September 18th they realized that um Danny Joe Ebrell had only delivered 3 of the 70 newspapers on his route And then they went to the fourth delivery address where they found his bicycle along with the rest of the newspapers. And the weird thing was that it really looked like there was no sign of a struggle. Um, But later on, when he was caught and when Jubert was caught in custody, um, he described how he had approached Ebrell, drawn a knife, and covered his mouth with like his hand, or covered Ebrell's mouth with with his hands, and then basically was like, "Follow me to my truck," and then ended up driving him to this, like, gravel road outside of town. Um, They searched for three days, and his body was discovered in a patch of high grass along this, like, gravel road, which was four miles away from his bicycle. Yeah. Yeah. He was um, stripped down to his underwear, and his feet and hands were tied, and his mouth was also, like, taped shut. There were also knife wounds across his body that they said were like suggestive of torture and in addition to all of that Jubert stabbed him nine times wow yeah um excessive yeah yeah um so this is a kidnapping and because of that it was stated to be under the jurisdiction of the federal government so the FBI was called in to investigate. Um, and the investigation followed several leads, including um, a young man who was arrested for molesting two boys about a week after the crime. He failed a polygraph test and had a false alibi. So they thought that he might have been the murderer. Okay. But the FBI had this profile that they created and he didn't fit the profile. So then he was released due to lack of evidence. Okay. There were a couple of other known pedophiles in the area who were questioned, but the case went cold due to lack of evidence again. On December 2nd, 1983, Christopher Walden, who was 12 years old at the time, disappeared from Papillon, Nebraska. This was about three miles from where Ibrell's body had been found. 
again, witnesses described a white man in a tan car, um, but there wasn't much other description apart from that. So later on when Juba was arrested, he said that he drove up to Walden as he was walking, showed him his knife and ordered him to get into the car, then drove to these like abandoned, or not abandoned, like railway tracks out of town where he ordered Walden to strip down to his underwear and lie down and I guess Walden did not lie down like he refused so there was a brief struggle and Jubert overpowered him and then stabbed him Um, apart from that apparently he cut Walden's throat so deeply that he was almost decapitated wow and his body was found two days later, five miles from town. Um, these crimes were similar to the other two, but there were differences in that Walden wasn't bound, was better concealed, and was thought to have been killed immediately after being abducted. I guess probably because he didn't lie down. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, just really, really gross. Yeah. Almost. About a month later, on January 11th, 1984, there was a preschool teacher in the area where these murders happened who called the police to say that she saw a young man driving around the area. Um, here, there is a bit of a conflict as to like what actually happened, like whether she said the car was just loitering or if he was actually driving around. But um, she thought it was suspicious and wrote down his license plate. And when... The man in the car saw this happening. He stopped driving and threatened to kill her before fleeing. Um, This car was not tan, but they did have a license plate, right? So they, like, traced the car, and it was found to be rented by one John Jubert, Mm. who was an enlisted radar technician from the Air Force Base in the area. And it turned out that his own car, which is a tan Chevrolet Nova sedan, was being repaired at the time. Mm. Um, So they issued a search warrant because they were like, that is a bit too similar for things (laughs) to be a coincidence. Yeah. Um, And they searched the home and found rope that was consistent with the one that was used to bind Danny Joe Evil. Um... And the FBI found that this was, like, unusual rope, I guess, because it was made for, like, U.S. military in South Korea. Oh, okay. Um, And so he was interrogated about this all and admitted that he got it from the scoutmaster in the troop that he was, like, the assistant for because, like, he's in the military now. Mm -hmm. So very much, like, a, a very odd specific rope. That was used, like, that it's not a coincidence if you found someone having that rope. Yeah, you know. Um, Yeah, so Robert K. Ressler, the FBI's head profile at the time, had access to these two boys in Nebraska and worked up this hypothetical description, which basically matched Hubert, like, to a T. Wow. Um, And while presenting the case of these two boys in Nebraska to a training class at the FBI Academy in Tawanico, there was a police officer from Portland, Maine, who noted similarities in 
like with that case to a case in his jurisdiction mm. and realized that that was where John Jubert had lived prior to joining the Air Force. Um, so then they did bite mark comparisons, which did prove that he was responsible for the murder in Maine, in addition to the two in Nebraska. Wow. Um, so Resler and basically everyone in Maine, like the detectives and investigators, believed that he joined the military to get away from Maine after he murdered. Um, which would make sense, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, they did investigate further and kind of uncovered that the stabbing of the nine-year-old girl in 1979 was also connected. Um, and then it, the, in 19, like the, um, sorry, the, it also, like, they investigated even further than that and um, kind of, like, figured out that he committed the other two crimes, like the um, stabbing a nine-year-old boy and mm. the um, other um, person for the University of Southern, Maryland, uh, Southern mm-hmm. Maine. Um, and they both said in those reports that, that both of them, quote-unquote, had been cut rather badly and were just lucky to be alive. Wow. So, like, he could have had two more murders under his belt yeah um, yeah so he jubert confessed to killing the two boys in nebraska and on january 12th was charged with their murders and then i guess he pled not guilty and then changed his plea to guilty okay i i don't know why he would plead not guilty because there was <laughs> heaps of like evidence against him yeah um yeah so there were several psychiatric evaluations that were performed and most of them characterized him as having obsessive compulsive disorder and sadistic tendencies as well as suffering from schizoid personality disorder. Mm. Um, He also said, or I guess more accurately warned the detectives that if he was released, he would probably kill again. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't release him. And he was held in lieu of a $10 million bond pending trial. Um, On July 3rd, 1984, he pled guilty to both counts, um, you know, for the murders in Nebraska. Mm -hmm. Um, He was found to have been not psychotic at the time of the crimes, and so a panel of three judges sentenced him to death for both counts. And then in Maine, which does not have a death penalty, he was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Ricky Stetson. Okay. Um, And this was, you know, after they put everything together and they were like, oh, bite marks, that's suspicious. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. Um, In 1995, he filed a writ of habeas corpus to the United States federal court over the death sentence. And his lawyers argued that, like exceptional depravity was unconstitutionally vague or something. I don't really understand law, but they were trying to get him to not be killed Mm -hmm. because of it. Um, And the court agreed. And so the state of Nebraska appealed to the United States District Court for the District of Nebraska. They overturned the appeal saying that he had shown sadistic behavior by torturing both the boys that he killed in Nebraska. So they were like, he should be put to death for that. I guess. Okay. 
I, I don't know all of the specifics in the case because law is not one of the subjects that I understand very well. <laughs> yeah. But all I do know is that he was executed on July 17, 1996 by the state of Nebraska via electric chair. Okay. Um, in a phone interview the Friday before, he admitted to killing the three boys and injuring three other victims in Portland and said that the boys he killed reminded him of himself when he was at their ages. Um, Interesting. He also, yeah, it's weird. I don't know Mm -hmm. why. Like, all I really know about his childhood is that he resented living with his mother. Hmm. But I don't know why that would cause him to turn to killing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, He told the main Sunday Telegram that he believed he started having these fantasies, these sadistic fantasies, after he saw his father choke his mother when he was four years old. Mm, yeah, that's that's trauma. <laughs> it is trauma, but also, like, I don't remember anything from when I was four years old. Yeah, that is, yeah, that's true. I don't know. And then I guess as a teenager and when he was, like, like in his early 20s, he started acting on the fantasies when he felt stress. He said, quote, I would act up, and the Richard Stetson case was one such example of acting out, end quote. He also said, um, quote, I was repressed. I felt like I had no control of myself, and I imagine I was very angry at myself for allowing this to happen, end quote. But also he did not elaborate on what sort of stress triggered him wanting to attack Mm. people. Yeah. In his final statement, he apologized for the three murders and added, quote, I do, not under- I do not know if my death will change anything or if it will bring anyone any peace, end quote. Um, but he did them anyway. He killed people anyway. Yeah. And, like, maybe his death won't bring any peace, but at least he's not in prison with the chance of breaking out. Yeah. I don't know. He did try to explain the crimes by saying, quote, it was the power and the domination and seeing the fear. That was more exciting than actually causing the harm, end quote. But he still caused the yeah. harm in a way. Yeah. He was the second person executed in Nebraska since the death penalty was reintroduced in the state in 1973. Yeah. Um, Judy Eberl, Danny's mother, said that she thought he deserved the death penalty not out of vengeance, but because, quote, it is the only punishment that can make sure he will never walk these streets again, hmm. quote. Um, so after he was put to death, um, there was an appeal to the Nebraska Supreme Court over whether the electric chair is cruel and unusual punishment, hmm. because I guess during his execution, he suffered a four-inch brain blister on the top of his head. Yikes. And, like, blister on both sides of his head above his ears. Yeah. Um, but that is a discussion for the Supreme Court. <laughs> um, and the last thing that I want to mention is something that retired FBI criminal profiler Peter Schmerich said. Basically, Jubert never stood out to many who knew him and was perceived as very quiet, very intelligent, kind of nerdy, nerdy with just a few friends. And... Like, the contrast between how he appeared and what he was actually like doesn't really surprise experts who studied serial killers. Um, Mm. So, 
basically what he said is quote they are not the charles manson types who get who people get scared of when they see them on the street they are the type of people who blend in and don't draw attention to themselves end quote and we have talked about this a lot i think but um that quote just really stuck out to me yeah because it makes sense you know like maybe you think he's like a little bit weird but he's not the type to be like oh i'm scared of him yeah um but yeah that was my story for you i'm sorry it wasn't very fun (laughs) but um that's that's how we're that's what we're doing (laughs) you're welcome well thank you um yeah (laughs) now i gotta gotta turn this around again all right let's see (laughs) good luck well it's halloween i dressed up last night me and my roommates were like winx club fairies which is very so cute it's so fun to just like dress up like we just like you know chilled in our apartment we hung out with some friends and then we came back to the apartment and chilled and it was very fun yeah it's a nice little halloween celebration but yeah i think that's it for me Oh, oh, it sounds like a good time. <laughs> yeah. Um, very nice. Very nice. I don't, yeah, I don't really have much else either. I went out to my friends as well yesterday and then today did nothing because my social battery has never felt more drained in my entire life. Mm, that's fair. Uh, <laughs> but you know, that's just how it is. I woke up at like seven and then stayed in bed until like three um clearly I'm doing well (laughs) hey sometimes you need those days you know I I just I don't know I still have a ton of work to finish like a bunch of assignments due tomorrow Mm. so I really have to work on that tonight but um yeah that's about it for me all right well do you have anything else you wanted to add I do not so I can just go into my spiel cool all right, so you can find us on Instagram at Grim Podcast. You can follow us, like our photos, DM us, and from our profile, there's a button to email us. You can email us at thegrimpodcast at gmail.com. You can send us thoughts on stories we have covered or stories you want us to cover or life updates of your own. We also have a Twitter, which is Podcast Grim, and a Facebook, which is Grim Podcast. And other than that, just leave us a good review and tell your friends and family about us. Yeah, and we will see you guys next week. Yes, happy Halloween. Bye. Bye.